Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Daniel records uh, a testimony for us, a narrative for us, to show us what it looks like to maintain fidelity to God against those in power who sought to undermine the prophet Daniel's loyalty to God. The prophet Daniel was a wise and faithful servant of God who was living as an exile. He was living outside of Israel's promised land. In 605 BC, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had captured Jerusalem and took the kingdom of Judah captive. And so they carried away some of God's people and brought them to Babylon in order to try to get them to act more like Babylonians, to follow their laws rather than the law of God, to submit to their law rather than God's law. Daniel remained faithful to God's law and instruction. And over the years, Daniel grew in favor and in wisdom and even grew in influence with the king. Uh, By this point, Darius had become the king rather than Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, But there were other leaders within this kingdom who were not taking kindly to Daniel's rise to, to power and to respect in the eyes of the king. And so they plotted against him. They couldn't find anything that he had done wrong himself. He was blameless, above reproach. So they said, we're not going to find grounds for complaint against this Daniel guy unless we find it in connection with the law of God. So they convinced King Darius to issue a decree that would state for the next 30 days, anyone who would pray to any god or man other than the king would be thrown into a den of lions. And despite the hostility, despite the threat of punishment, Daniel remained steadfast in his devotion to God. He continued to pray three times a day, openly defying the king's decree. His rebellion here was not a rebellion against earthly authority in and of itself, but against the pressure to reject God's authority in his life. When Daniel's enemies caught him praying, They gleefully reported his actions to the king. They had trapped him. And so he was thrown into the den of lions. And then a stone was placed over the entrance to to seal his fate in there with the lions. But God shut the mouth of those lions, preventing them from harming Daniel. And the next morning when the king shows up, anxiously runs in and pulls the stone away to look inside... He found Daniel there alive and unharmed. He was overwhelmed by this demonstration of God's power and Daniel's faithfulness. And so the king ordered the conspirators who had plotted against him to be thrown into the den instead where they were immediately devoured. The story of Daniel in the lion's den illustrates the importance of standing firm in godly 
good convictions, even in the face of great pressure and opposition. Daniel's persistence under persecution was built upon two things, his knowledge and trust of God's instruction, and second, his dependence upon God in prayer. So we're meditating over the next few weeks over uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is all about rightly valuing God's revelation in words. This is the third uh, of our seven weeks as we're looking at the Psalm 119. We're thinking about the way that God has revealed truth and beauty and goodness to us through his words. And this is a long psalm because it's eight verses per Hebrew letter. It's written as a Hebrew acrostic. So there are eight verses for each of the 22 letters, which brings us to a total of 176 verses. And our big idea from this third set of verses is this. God's illumination of his revelation empowers our persistence in persecution. Hopefully that will make more sense as we carry on through the psalm this morning. We've broken it down in two parts. First, godly convictions rely upon God's action. We'll see that in the first set of four verses. And then in the second set of four verses, we ought to gain solace, comfort, in persecution by appealing to God. Verses 21 to 24. Let's pray as we begin. Father, this morning as we turn to your word, we uh, recognize that your word instructs us to pray with great dependence upon you, that we can physically see these words with our eyes, but we don't always and in every circumstance truly see what your word is showing us. And so we need your Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts and minds in order to truly see it and to truly savor it, to rightly delight in your instruction. We recognize that this does not come to us naturally, but supernaturally. And so we ask you that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your law. We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, godly convictions depend upon God's action, and we'll see that in the first set of four verses, which I will read into our hearing one more time, verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Uh, These four verses tie together a desperate dependence upon God for the psalmist. Uh, The psalmist is requesting to God that he would act for his benefit. Uh, He wants his convictions, his his, uh, firm, confident beliefs for all of life, he wants those to be based upon God's teaching. And he knows that he needs God to reach out first to show himself to be a teacher 
in order for him to be able to be the student. And notice what he requests from God, verse 17, deal bountifully with me. Verse 18, open my eyes. Verse 19, don't hide your commandments from me. And so what we've, what we've seen in the previous section of verses already is that he knows, the psalmist knows that there are essentially two paths to life. There is one path which leads to happiness, true happiness, human flourishing, and blessedness, which is the path that God lays out for us in his instruction, in his, his Torah, his commandments. The other path is the path that we make up for ourselves, that path that we think will lead us to happiness, but because our hearts are shady, will inevitably lead us through sin and shame. So the psalmist knows that there are these two paths, he believes it, and he wants the better path. He wants to want the better path even more than he currently wants it, but he also knows that he is prone to stray away. He is prone to wander from that better path, and that frightens him. The psalmist, just like you and I, does not have the resources within himself to perpetually stay on the right path. He knows that he's going to walk this line of this narrow road that leads to happiness, that leads to God. If he's going to do that, he's going to need God's help. He wants good, righteous convictions about his life, but he wants to follow God's teaching. He wants to love what he ought to love. He wants to hate what he ought to hate, but he knows he can't do it by himself, and so he needs God to act. He needs God to act. So let's think just for a moment about two acts in which God makes himself known to us, revelation and illumination. Revelation first. For our purposes this morning, here's what we mean by revelation. It's God disclosing or revealing information that would otherwise be unknown. We only know God because he has made himself knowable to us. Left to ourselves, we would not know who God is. We would know that a God exists. We can see that through creation. We know there's a powerful creator. So we could know about God, but we wouldn't be able to know him unless he took the initiative to make himself knowable to us, and he has. Through his mighty redemptive acts in history, and even then through his own inspired interpretation of those mighty acts as recorded for us in Scripture, God reveals himself to us as a savior, a redeemer. This is the very basic principle of what we believe about God's word, the, the Bible, that it is not simply a collection of what some people in the ancient Near East thought about God. It's not their ruminations about who they imagine God to be. The Bible is a revelation from God himself to show us who he is. So God, the Holy Spirit, moved in the authors. Uh, we say he inspired their writing to reveal God's nature and character to us. God's word is his revelation in that sense, his revealing of himself to us. And so we are dependent upon God for his own self-revelation to us. And scripture is just that. 
is what we find in the Bible. It reveals God to us, and then it directs us to enjoy God himself. But notice what he prays in verse 18. Open my eyes. Uh, More literally, we could translate this as uncover my eyes and cause me to see, to behold wondrous things from your teaching, your law, your instruction. As we've mentioned before, when we talk about law, we're not simply talking about or merely talking about the, the Ten Commandments. It's his whole Torah, God's whole instruction, his revelation in words, which would have included the first five books of the Old Testament, which recorded and interpreted his mighty acts of redemption that we recorded like in the book of Exodus, chapter 7, where it says, God redeemed Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders, those, those plagues and supernatural acts. They're referred to as wonders. So wonders here in Psalm 119 could be an allusion to the miraculous rescue of God's people, or maybe just in a broader sense, it's actually just things that go beyond our natural abilities to be able to understand. Either way, and this is what we must notice, he is praying and asking God to help him see what's already there. The wonderful things are already in the Bible for us to find. But again, and this is very important, we need our eyes opened to actually truly see them. We are by nature children of wrath. Our hearts are depraved, they're darkened, and because of that, even though Scripture is clear, if we're left to ourselves, we don't truly see what is in it. If we reject what is in Scripture, we can rest assured that the problem is not with Scripture, the problem is with us and our rebellious, ignorant hearts. We can understand this physically, even the biggest, greatest library in the world with all the greatest records of human wisdom would be of no use if there was no light in that library. There is no book that can be read in the dark. This physical reality makes sense spiritually as well. We read in Romans 8 that the mind that is darkened, that is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, Romans 8, 7. That this is why we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. As Ephesians 1.18, as we've already sang earlier this morning, so that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. So if we want to find God's salvation in his word, even in the law of Moses, we need the Holy Spirit to uncover our eyes so that we might find the hope of the gospel. And we see this very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as well. I'll read for us verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope of the gospel, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, the old covenant, but their, their minds were hardened, speaking here of unbelieving Israelites. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the Torah, the instruction, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, saying Moses is just saying another way of the law because Moses wrote the law. Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So let me just try to summarize what we've found here. The Holy Spirit, through Christ, unveils the eyes of our hearts that we might find freedom from our sinful ignorance in God's word and to turn to him in faith. Uh, Just as the Holy Spirit revealed God to us through his words as it is recorded for us in scripture, the Holy Spirit must work in us to allow us to truly see what he has for us in his word. He has to flip the lights on in our heart in order that we might behold the wondrous things that are in his word. And so to, to have and to maintain godly, righteous convictions that will keep us on the happy path which leads to God, which come from God's revelation, we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to give us eyes of faith to behold God the Son in his word. This is what we mean by illumination. Is God enabling us to truly see and love that which he already revealed? So because of our depravity and because the prince of the power of the air is putting a veil over our hearts and minds, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we cannot accept the scriptures as divine truth as authoritative or as good for us, our true knowledge of the wonderful things that are in Scripture is an effect of God's opening our eyes by the illuminating grace of His Holy Spirit. So hopefully you can see, uh, there is an utter dependence upon God's mercy and grace in order to be able to see and trust His gospel, the good news that He has for us. So this means that we, like the psalmist, must pray for the Holy Spirit's help. And he will guide us into all truth. So not new revelations, because scripture is sufficient. God has said what he needs to say. But our true knowledge of wonderful things are dependent upon God. Scripture is sufficient, we don't need new, but we do need to understand what he has already given us in his word. There is an absolute Uh, helpless humility uh, that is evident in the psalmist's language here in these first four verses. He calls himself a servant of God and a sojourner on this earth. He is humbly dependent upon God's guidance for himself in this world. And that's a good place to be. Humble submission and recognition of God's authority as expressed through his word because nothing is going to take us further from the happy path to God than a confidence in our own wisdom and ability apart from him. If God has led you to the truth, friend, be thankful. Be compassionate towards those whose hearts are still darkened. Reach out to them in mercy, reach out to them in prayer. 
knowing that only God himself can rescue us from the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. The humility of that one who follows God's path in utter dependence upon him is put in contrast here within this psalm to the prideful one who willfully and self-confidently rejects his commandments. Point two, gain solace in persecution by appealing to God. Verses 21 through 24, one more time. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. So this section introduces some new characters in this psalm. Up until this point, we've only seen God and the psalmist, and the psalmist reflecting on his relationship with God. But here, the lens is pushing out, and we're seeing that there are other characters within the scene here. There are those who are hostile to God and towards God's servant, who is the psalmist who's writing. Notice in verse 21, it describes these people in three ways. It says they're insolent, which is, uh, just means arrogant, it means prideful, uh, the opposite of the humility that the, the, the psalmist is embodying. It says they are accursed. This is the same word that is used in Genesis 3, where God speaks those curses that have resulted from Adam and Eve's fall from grace. And then it says they wander from God's commandments. So you've got three perspectives on these characters here in this scene. And really, this is just three distinct angles of viewing the same reality. To be insolent is to go your own way. To be accursed is to wander from God's commandments. And to be insolent is to be accursed. Three different ways of speaking of the same reality. And we see the way that these people are acting towards God's servant here, the psalmist, because he has kept to God's instruction, as he says, he is now the target of their scorn. Uh, he's the target of their contempt, verse 22 says. And then verse 23 introduces a subset of these prideful people. It says those who are in authority over the psalmist. It says princes. It's those who sit in authority. Those princes are plotting against him. As more literally, there are rulers who are sitting and speaking against him. So we can begin to feel, I believe, the tension that he is under. He is committed to submitting to God's authority as the king of kings, as a sojourner on this earth. But there are those around him, his peers and those in power, whose darkened hearts mock God's authority and anyone who would submit their lives to it. So he prays that he would maintain his godly convictions in the face of that that pressure. If he's going to withstand the slander of these insolent, self-assured people around him, he's going to need to really delight in God's law. He's going to really need to love God's word in order to maintain fidelity in the face of this social pressure. That love is going to need to be strong to keep him from caving in 
to the hostility. Because we, we recall, he already feels within himself prone to wander from this good path. But now what we see here is there is outward acts upon him too. Uh, outwardly, he is being compelled by others to stray from God's path. And so perhaps now we understand the desperation, that dependence that is so evident in the set of first four verses from uh, 17 to 20. That dependence upon God is more clear when we understand the hostility that he faces. So let me just try to paraphrase the concept here. God, I am your servant. I know that you're the king of kings, but I am living under authorities here on earth that are making a mockery out of your authority. They think I'm wasting my life by submitting to your instruction. They're insulting me. They have contempt for me because I value your word. But really, the contempt, the reproach that I am experiencing is because I'm your servant. They're actually opposed to you. But really, that attempt to, to protect myself really should be me trying to protect and value rightly your word because the reproach that I am receiving is actually due to you. The reproach that they have for you is falling on me. So God, would you rebuke them and open my eyes so that I might be drawn into the wondrous things of your word because I need to see it. They have to be my delight. I must long for your guidance because if I start to drift, if I start to coast, I am going to be swept away in the current of a culture that opposes you so strongly and I don't want that. I want your instruction to be my counselors, not the ignorance of the insolent, accursed ones. So Lord, would you please deal bountifully with me so that I might thrive by keeping your word. Now, it's not too hard to draw connections to our contemporary day, is it? I trust that uh, many of us feel similar tensions. You know, the respect for God's word, uh, the respect for the authority of God's word waxes and wanes over time and even across civilizations. But there is, it seems to be, a real increasing present pressure to change our ethics to turn from God's clear instruction in order to keep up to date. We don't want to be thought of as backwards. Uh, We don't want to be thought of as unenlightened fools for rejecting the culture's ever-changing values. And there are powerful, influential people, uh, whether it's at your work or in the marketplace, your family, or increasingly within the government, who speak against those who keep God's testimonies. They would have God's people be like them and wander from God's commandments, to be accursed, to celebrate pride rather than to cultivate humility. Uh, This past week, uh, one who is like a prince, the President of the United States, flew a flag from the White House that explicitly represents a prideful rejection of God's commandments. Uh, And then he tweeted a picture of it and said, this is who we are as Americans. We celebrate this. The implication, of course, is that if you don't, well, you don't really belong. And so you can feel the scorn and contempt. You should be ashamed. 
those in power who are speaking against the ones who want to submit to God's instruction. So how do we deal with that pressure? Certainly not by being evil or by giving in to the impulse of the flesh to hate. It must be by following the Holy Spirit, embodying the fruit of the Holy Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. How do we deal with this pressure? Well, before we jump into the psalm and be like, I am, I am the psalmist, it would be a better thing for us to understand this psalm in light of Christ. What does this psalm mean through the lens of Christ? So we look to Jesus and we recall Jesus' teaching. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we look to Jesus and we recall his life, his ministry, there has never been anyone as blameless, as innocent, as righteous, as above reproach as Jesus. He truly and fully walked in the way of God's instruction in every way, and all of the enmity of man that was against God was directed fully and truly at Christ himself. The authorities plotted against him. They insulted him. They slandered him. Indeed, they put him to death. He didn't need to suffer. And if he was at all concerned for his own safety, for the prosperity of his own life in the short term, he could have taken an easier path that is, after all, what Satan had offered him in his temptation in the desert. But Christ bore all the scorn and contempt for righteousness' sake so that all who would trust and hide in him by faith might know that they will never be condemned by the one authority whose judgment ultimately and finally will matter, who is the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. So we look to Jesus and we recall his example. Just as Daniel turned to God in prayer during times of hostility and times of pressure, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced his greatest temptation and pressure, and he prayed. He prayed that the path of suffering before him might be removed. Nevertheless, he wanted God's will to be done, and so he willingly suffered and died in order to take the sting away from death for all who would trust in him. Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. 
So our instruction here as Christians seems to be clear. We ought to prayerfully ask God to open our eyes, to illuminate his word to us, to empower us in our persistence in times of persecution and slander and hostility. If you're facing slander and hostility, pray about it. Take it to the Lord in prayer. He may remove that slander, and he may simply remove the sting of that slander. But in any case, we turn in humble dependence upon God in prayer. And we would ask that he open the eyes of our heart so that his counsel might be our delight. And friends, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let me invite you to pray that the Holy Spirit would cause you to have the desire to turn to him in faith, that you would want what you ought to want, that you would follow this path of happiness that leads to God himself, which is faith in Christ. Thanks be to our God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.